Welcome to the Positive Energy Podcast, the official podcast of the University of Ottawa's Positive Energy Initiative. We seek to strengthen public confidence in Canadian energy policy, regulation, and decision-making through evidence-based research and analysis, engagement, and recommendations for action. I'm your host, Brendan Frank. The concepts of regulatory independence and effectiveness are under tremendous pressure. In the past two to three decades, energy decision makers have had to grapple with a rapidly expanding slate of economic, environmental, and social issues. Looking ahead 30 years, Canada has committed to achieving net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. Successfully charting this future will depend in considerable measure on whether public energy decision systems, including regulators, are up to the job. Our guests today are Positive Energy Executive-in-Residence Mike Cleland and Positive Energy Chair Dr. Monica Gattinger. Mike and Monica are the co-authors of a brand new positive energy report entitled Energy Project Decision Systems for Net Zero, designing for functionality, adaptability, and legitimacy. The report assesses what needs to change within Canada's regulatory ecosystem to make net zero by 2050 a reality. Welcome, Monica and Mike. Thanks. Thanks, Brandon. Glad to be here. So, Monica, let's start at a high level. How does this report fit into Positive Energy's broader agenda of work on Canada's energy future in an age of climate change? So, Positive Energy um, focuses in on how to strengthen public confidence in decision-making, notably uh, for energy in a context of climate change. And so our overarching research question, which really zeroes in on Canada, is to ask, you know, how can Canada an energy intensive resource-based economy, how can we build public confidence and public authorities that are making decisions about the country's energy future in an age of climate change? So for us, public authorities means everything from policymakers to regulators, indigenous governments, municipalities, the courts. Um, The work that we've done falls into three key streams that have rolled out in succession. The first one focuses on polarization, trying to understand uh, just how polarized we are or aren't as a country over energy and climate issues. The second uh, research stream, which we refer to as roles and responsibilities, really tries to answer the question of who decides what and how when it comes to uh, energy and climate decision-making, so the respective roles of policymakers, regulators, the courts, uh, and the like. And then the third stream focuses on consensus building. So really it's about how to take decisions and looks at models of and limits to consensus building. So if we look at the roles and responsibilities research stream, we've got multiple studies uh, in that research stream. And this report is really a flagship report for that stream. So we focus in on the question, who decides what, when, and how, uh, which is really fundamental for energy project decision-making. There's been a lot of uncertainty over this in Canada. Uh, What are the respective roles of policymakers, of regulators, of indigenous governments, uh, of the courts? And a lot of the studies in this broader roles and responsibilities research stream are querying particular elements of that. So we've got a study on the role of the federal cabinet and pipeline project projects, the decision-making process for final investment decisions for LNG projects. We've got a study looking at the emerging practices to strengthen policymaker regulator roles. 
all of these have in common, that idea of, um, you know, what are the decision-making arrangements that we need that will foster public confidence, not only in the substance of decisions, but also in the processes used to arrive at them. So this project takes a very deep dive into that question. It's the most comprehensive of all of the studies in the roles and responsibilities stream. And it's really going to be fundamental for Canada to successfully navigate uh, the country's energy future. Uh, we really, we're going to need trusted and effective decision systems on the road ahead. And I'll just quickly note, Monica, that all of the reports that you referred to are available on the Positive Energy website and as previous episodes in this podcast. So, Mike, in this report uh, and in the studies across this broader project that you spearheaded with Monica, it's really honed in on two key concepts, regulatory independence and regulatory effectiveness. Can you unpack those two terms for us and explain how they influence one another? Yeah, sure, Brendan. I'll, I'll, I'll start uh, with that. Of course, there are, there are many layers here, but um, I'm going to and I and I'm going to start with effectiveness because that's really what we're ultimately trying to trying to get at. and and. One of the things is we dug into the work, we, we eventually came down to three basic ideas for, for how regulatory systems need to be designed and what would actually make them effective. So the first idea is what we call functionality. In other words, can they, can they do the job? And, and, and that includes things like, can you attract investors? Can you look out for the concerns of, uh, of local communities? Can you get it done on time? And that's something that's going to be bigger and bigger as an issue as we looked in at zero by 2050. So that's the first one. The next one is that adaptability, and it's really can you know can they change over time as circumstances evolve? And I think I think Monica is probably going to talk a little bit more about about uh, the way circumstances have evolved in the past several several decades. But they are evolving quickly, uh, and those systems need to be able to adapt while still maintaining some measure of uh, of, of stability. And the last one is what we call legitimacy. In other words, do they have the confidence in general? of all of the affected parties. And that's a lot of different parties. It's from local communities, including indigenous communities, to investors, plus the, uh, plus the public at large. So lots of details behind those concepts and, and inevitably uh, a tricky balancing act for policymakers. But start with the, the prospect of, you know, completely remaking our energy systems over the next three decades uh, if we want to achieve next zero. And I guess what I would say is that somehow effective public decision-making systems will be at the heart of that, and we need to spend more time getting those systems working better. So as to independence, in a sense, that's a, it's a secondary question. It's independence is a way of, of, of getting there. There are lots of ways to design public uh, decision systems. And it's interesting, as in the research, historically in Canada, it's often been done by making the regulators and, the, and the, in, the, in those systems, independent, quote unquote, um, independent of short-term political considerations and free from influence by any third party. And that's been pretty foundational for a long time. It generally worked. Uh, it was effective, in other words, if not always as adaptable or as legitimate as, uh, as we would like. But we've moved away from that uh, over the last couple of decades um, toward making regulatory processes, I would argue, more political. Uh, less transparent, less objective. And I guess the question is whether systems designed that way can meet all the three tests of effectiveness. Uh, that remains to be seen. But I think we would argue that uh, it, it is very much in, in, in doubt. And what we're doing in this report, yeah, in its conclusions, is urging governments to rethink where, where they've been going and where they should go uh, as we look to the future. 
So Monica, the study emphasizes that energy regulators have had more and more on their plates, more stakeholders, evolving societal values, and so forth. Your paper notes that the pressure will grow for much faster change. Can you expand on that idea? Because it seems pretty important. Sure. Let's start with recent decades. Uh, so I've been studying energy regulation for quite a long time, uh, but not as long as most of our energy regulators have been around. In fact, most of our energy regulators were designed many, many decades ago, some as early as the 1930s, many in the 1950s uh, and beyond. And, you know, needless to say, the world has changed since that time. Uh, we've got, you know, a number of key changes that we point to in this report, one of which uh, is uh, referred to as a decline of deference, a, a phrase that Neil Nevitt, uh, political scientist here in Canada, made popular, uh, which, you know, basically means that people don't automatically uh, trust experts and expertise the way that, uh, that they used to. Um, we've also got growing demands and expectations for engagement. People want to be involved in decisions that are going to have an impact on them. We have a rise of environmental considerations, especially climate change, but also local environmental impacts. People are increasingly concerned about environmental, environmental impacts of uh, energy development and, and use. We have the growth and rise of Indigenous rights uh, and reconciliation. We've got the rise of social media, you know, and on and on. Uh, so all this to say, systems weren't designed in that context. And as Mike alluded to, some of the things that have been done to reform our energy uh, project decision-making systems, whether by regulators themselves or by policymakers, have not always moved things in the direction of greater effectiveness. In fact, uh, sometimes it's been, unfortunately, the opposite. So if we look forward, the growing policy attention to climate, you know, our ambition of net zero emissions by 2050 is going to require an unprecedented transformation of our energy systems, the likes of which uh, I would argue we've never seen, and certainly not in such a short time frame. And a lot of policy and political attention goes to technological innovation, right? The new energy technologies and sources we're going to need to decarbonize our energy systems. But deploying those technologies, building out our electricity systems, you know, we might need double or triple the electricity generating capacity in the years ahead and incentivizing all the innovation to make this happen, it, it's going to require being able to plan, permit and construct what is really a mind boggling amount of energy projects. And increasingly, these projects can't proceed without partnerships and meaningful engagement and involvement of Indigenous communities and governments, which themselves have growing power, rights and authority. And if we don't have the regulatory systems that are adaptable, functional and seen as legitimate, we actually risk cutting ourselves off at the knees. So that's where this report is coming from. You know, it's like we know what's coming down the pike. We need to plan for it and we have to design our energy project decision systems accordingly. So Mike, I'd like to pick up on something Monica alluded to there. This broader project was initially titled Policymakers, Regulators and the Courts. So where do policymakers and the courts fit into this picture that you've described so far? Yeah, sure, Brendan. Um, I'm, I'm going to flip it on its head and start with the uh, with with the court. The court's basic job is to first of all assess whether the decisions have met their basic legal tests. Have they operated consistent with their governing statutes and regulations? Have they applied basic concepts of what is often called natural justice, uh, which is essentially a fairness fairness to all parties? And that's that's their basic job. Uh, and, I, and I guess to come back to that point, 
we think that if 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 policymakers can get these systems right, then with any luck, uh, we'll spend less time in the courts, and uh, and that could improve improve a lot of things. But it does start with getting uh, the systems right, which of course is where you bring in policymakers, and there it gets a lot more complicated. To put it in a bit of context, governments are accountable to Parliament and the legislatures, depending on whether it's provincial or federal and through them to uh, to the people of Canada. Uh, and they must make all, all sorts of decisions, some of them very broad, some of them some of them very detailed. But their first job, we would argue, is to design and then oversee the operation of decision systems uh, and to think about different ways they can do that. There are lots of possibilities, but maybe one particular observation from our work is worth noting. Um, I think we would argue that if policymakers intervene in all or even a lot of the individual project decisions, in other words, intervene directly. Um, first of all, they're going to be overwhelmed. Monica talked about the, the huge number of decisions that are coming, coming at us. They'll be overwhelmed. In other words, it won't be functional. Second, they will be constantly scrambling to respond to individual case circumstances because they're all different, they're all very political, instead of thinking about how the system can evolve. So it won't be, frankly, as adaptable. And finally, um, very political decision processes uh, will often be obscure as to exactly what lay behind them. They'll be unpredictable, uh, as, as political decisions often are, uh, and they may very well be unfair, uh, in which case the system won't be legitimate. So that's something for policymakers to, uh, to think of. Maybe wrapping it up, if we want to achieve net zero, policymakers, above all, are going to have to get better at doing two things. One is policy. That may seem a little ironic, but in point of fact, they're often not very good at policy. And what that means is articulating the direction they want to go, often in considerable detail, maybe more detail than they would like to. Uh, and it's not just broad pronouncements, but what does it really mean for our, our energy systems? And then designing the systems by which individual decisions actually do get made. And then getting harder still, uh, planning, uh, in other words, laying out probable courses of action, in other words, setting out pathways by which we might get to net zero, and then constantly adjusting those, because it isn't. we're not talking about a plan, we're talking about planning, ongoing planning. So adjusting those as technology and other circumstances evolve. And I think we would argue that that's where they should be focusing more of their energies, perhaps, than they have been to date. So Monica, Mike noted there that there are a lot of possible pathways forward here, but the report stops short of actually making recommendations. The first message you have for decision makers is that we actually can't afford to get institutional arrangements wrong. And Mike talked about that a little bit, but I was wondering if you could go deeper. What does that actually mean in practice in the day-to-day -day operations of these regulators? Sure. So, I mean, let's sort of start with where we've been and, and where we are. Canada, unfortunately, has a very sorry track record of making ambitious climate commitments and failing miserably at achieving them. So despite all of our international emissions reductions commitments over the years, our emissions are the same now as they were 15 years ago. But the country's at a hinge point on energy and climate right now. There's much greater alignment among the public industry and governments about the need to reduce emissions and to capitalize on the country's energy potential. So we're finally, I hope, well positioned to bend Canada's emissions curve downwards once and for all. But critical to doing that is going to be having in place the institutional arrangements that actually support 
emissions reductions. So if we get the institutional arrangements wrong, you know, if they're not adaptable enough, if they're not functional, if they're not seen as legitimate, at the very best, we'll see energy projects we need getting delayed, uh, which of course would hamstring our emissions reductions efforts. And at worst, they won't go ahead at all. And we could find ourselves spinning our wheels mired in conflict. Um, you know, so Canada is already seen as a jurisdiction, uh, unfortunately, with a rather unstable investment climate. Uh, to date, this has played out largely in the case of pipelines, but it's going to start to play out, and we're beginning to see this already, for major infrastructure projects that will be crucial for reducing emissions, like electricity transmission lines or hydro projects or wind farms. If we can't get those sorts of projects financed, planned, and permitted and built, it will make it very difficult uh, to reduce emissions. So that's why we just can't afford to get this wrong. So, Mike, the paper discusses a lot of the tensions that exist in Canada's regulatory system, balancing adaptability with stability, the timeliness of decisions versus deeper engagement, investor and community confidence. So thinking about how we navigate these tensions, how do we do that in a way that builds public confidence rather than eroding it further, given the timelines involved? Yeah, and Brandon, that is the very big question. I suppose if I really had the answer to that, I'd, I'd be a billionaire uh, and uh, or on the road, road to becoming one. Um, it, it's, it's really easy to be glib about this. I mean, you had a long career in, in public policy in various, various ways has taught me, and I know it taught Monica, uh, a bunch of things about the way, the way it actually works. Um, our political leaders face a very, very tough job, and it's getting tougher. Uh, and uh, and I don't envy them. So it's it, it's easy for us to be critical uh, and to say, "Gee, how come they don't do a better job?" Well, the answer is a lot of there are a lot of things in the incentive system uh, that that um, that make it hard. But maybe one idea: um, think about priorities um, and. Monica alluded to this about the need to get the institutions right. It, it's a bit ironic in a way. We we always talk these days about systemic problems. Everything's about a systemic problem. And it's probably true in most cases. But you ask any political leader where they get the most satisfaction. Is it from subsidizing somebody to install some widget? Uh, or is it from taking the time to think through the redesign of basic institutional systems? And of course, we all know the answer. Where is the reward? What's the incentive? It's to do something immediate, something that somebody can see and kick. Um, so it's not easy uh, to give that give that priorities. But maybe a thought on this is that is that those of us in civil society, and whether it's what we're doing at Positive Energy or non-government organizations or or or, or business. Um, we need to give them more room. That when I say them, I mean I mean our political leaders. We need to have more patience and say, let's take the time to get the institutions right, and and to be constantly adapting those institutions as we learn or as we go along. That doesn't mean no immediate action. We will actually need the widgets, but we, we we're going to need to spend more time thinking about how it's all connected, and how to put new technologies in place get them operating so they function properly. And if we don't do that, all the widgets in the world are never going to get us. It is a massive undertaking, as you both just described, and I think a long overdue conversation. Monica Gattinger, Michael Cleland, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Thanks Brendan. You've been listening to the Positive Energy Podcast. 
see more of our research, and to find out about upcoming events, check out our website. Today's episode was recorded on the traditional territories of the Algonquin people. It was produced by Alicia Aziz, Raphael Desordi, and myself, Brendan Frank. We'll be back in a few weeks. See you soon.